Hello, and welcome to One World, One Health with the latest ideas to improve the health of our planet and its people. I'm Maggie Fox. Planet Earth faces some big crises, pollution, climate change, infectious diseases, both old and new. These problems are all linked, and what humanity does is key to all of them. This podcast is brought to you by the One Health Trust with bite-sized insights into ways to help. A growing source of antibiotic resistance, the rise of drug-resistant superbugs, is farming. For decades, farmers have given antibiotics to their animals to keep them healthy, but over time it became clear that antibiotics also make many animals grow bigger and produce more meat and eggs. But just as with people, every time an animal's given an antibiotic, the bacteria in their bodies have a chance to develop ways to survive its effects. This drives resistance. In many wealthy countries, farmers are being urged to cut back on antibiotic use. This means moving to less intensive farming. But in developing countries, this is a bigger ask. In fact, in some countries, farmers are encouraged to more intensive farming methods to help bring them out of poverty. In this episode, we're chatting with Claire Chandler, professor of medical anthropology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Chandler's been looking at this problem. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Farmers in developing countries are often trying to catch up in terms of making a living. Can you tell us a little bit about your work studying them? So it's interesting that we refer to them as farmers because actually often what we imagine then is this traditional farmer who's, you know, been farming for generations and generations. Actually, what we're seeing is quite a rise in people who have never farmed before, who have had sort of jobs in the city, who are moving into owning farms, owning, you know, pigs and poultry predominantly and trying to kind of expand their portfolio of activity to include doing some farming and they might employ some other people to do some of the work or do it themselves. So actually even understanding who the farmers are is a starting point that helps to orientate our analysis of what they're doing in relation to antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance. So tell us, you're a medical anthropologist, how do you go about studying this issue? So I think medical anthropology has a lot to offer in the um, field of antimicrobial resistance because we really try to get into the understanding of the social world. And in the case of antimicrobial resistance, that's kind of a biosocial world. That's how we humans are in the world and how we are with microbes and how we are with other animals and other non-humans that we're in the world with. So in anthropology, we're really trying to understand how we've come to be where we are. And that means if we do a study of farming and the use of antibiotics, we want to understand the history of how we've ended up where we are and what are the cultural phenomena, what are the social and economic parameters that mean that we've ended up where we are, for example, using antibiotics in the way that we're doing. And so what's going on in some of the places you've studied? You've seen kind of a change. That's right. So well, what we've seen is a change in how we've realized how widespread antibiotic use is. Because actually antibiotic use has been part and parcel of everyday life now for the last few decades. But really, it's been so effective, it's become part of the furniture, part of the infrastructure. We started to use them across lots of different areas that are enabling our productivity, it's enabling people to go to work, it's enabling our social systems and our systems of livelihoods in ways that actually we hadn't really realised until antibiotics started to lose their efficacy, until antimicrobial resistance arose. And then we really realised, gosh, we're using antibiotics 
all over the place for many different things. I've seen you use this term quick farming. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So this term emerged from our fieldwork with farmers in peri-urban Kampala in Uganda. And this is really referring to the way that they are trying to quickly raise birds and pigs for market and quickly produce good eggs. And the emphasis on quick really led us to explore the contrast with slow farming and what orientates things to be so fast. Why are we trying to quickly raise these animals and uh, produce these eggs? Of course, that in that quickness, antibiotics become part of that picture because antibiotics are enable you to have animals that perhaps might not fit so well in your environment. They have, for example, we were studying these exotic animals, they're called exotics, that have actually come from outside. So they might be slightly fatter pigs or faster growing chickens, but they don't necessarily fit well in the environment. And antibiotics are one of the ways that you sort of protect those animals from the environment that they're in. And so this idea of quick farming kind of refers to that very quick production. And the thing that we became very interested in is why do we need that quickness and what's that a part of? So when I'm saying about kind of sort of making a comparison with slow farming, what we find is that it's really embedded in this wider idea of progress and modernity, that we need to be as productive as we can to be faster and better. And the promise is then that you will earn enough to reach what we might see as the basics of life for your family to get an education. But that's a a kind of a promise of of the perpetual sort of trying to continue to be productive and to have as many different things in your portfolio as you can of livelihood activities. And farming has become one of those. What are you seeing in some of the places you're studying? What have you seen change? So the use of antibiotics by these farmers seems to be kind of a part of a much bigger story of progress, progression, modernity. And part of this idea in Uganda is around entrepreneurialism. And this is something that, you know, it has been said that Uganda is the most entrepreneurial country in the world. And it's something to be very proud of, to take opportunities and taking kind of these opportunities to add in some farming as part of your kind of portfolio of activities is seen to be something that is part of being a good citizen. And we found that there's quite a range of media that's used to engage people in farming. So we have television shows that advertise a better life through that kind of investment. There's these big expos where people who are involved in the industry from feed concentrates to veterinary services promote the sales of their products. So people come along um, who perhaps haven't done farming before and learn about how to do it. And one of these is even called the Harvest Money Expo. So it's this idea that if you farm, you'll literally harvest money. So it's got this great appeal that you could, you too could do that and you can get some money out of it. But of course, the other side of that is the methods that you have to use in order to deliver on that promise. And you've described some of the ways that people talk about this themselves. Can you tell us some of those stories? I suppose one of the parts of of this is that it's not a direct strategy to move the country towards a particular form of farming. It's not that we're seeing this sort of everybody must now go out and do quick farming. This is our country strategy. But it really weaves together these different strands of entrepreneurial orientation for the population. The way that we will develop is through everybody being an entrepreneur and the opening up of some regulations in particular zones in the hopes of investment, perhaps more foreign. And so this kind of weaving together of different things that are happening in society, together with this idea of the livelihoods, the lively livestock revolution. And this idea is that people are going to be farming in a 
more intensive manner, which means that you have a double win of having more protein and nutrition for residents and farming as a means of income generation so that there are these this double win. But of course, when we enter antimicrobial resistance into that, that creates more of a, you know, is there a different way to weigh that up? When we spoke to farmers, they spoke of being often being unable to sell their animals or their eggs at a time that they wanted, that they were needing to compromise on the price or the timing of when they were selling or growing their animals. So it was actually telling us that perhaps the notion of this great demand for protein was perhaps more of a social story than a reality. And was there really this demand? So we started tuning into the ways that the demand was being created and, and seeing these things like the Rolex Festival. The Rolex is a rolled up fried egg and chapati that you can buy on the street. There were pool parties to sell, uh, pork pool parties to sell pork and the Bucket Chicken Festival. So these new festivals and cultural forms were being created that celebrated the consumption of protein, which seemed to be required as part of the picture of then being able to grow protein as part of this sort of industry model of, of having enough demand in order for the supply chain to work. And of course, we, when we're seeing people actually find really struggling to sell the meat that they've been growing, then we start to wonder whether that model of the livestock revolution really is holding there. And, and of course, then we're seeing the ways that people have to cut corners to try and compete in that marketplace. And again, then we start seeing those antibiotics starting to be woven back into the story of how people are managing to survive and these cycles of, of loss with their farming. So meat's almost like social status. So some people have said that. So this sort of theory that if you have, if you're eating meat, then that, you know, is somehow attached to people's social status. And that may well be true. But in some ways, I think our study was finding that perhaps that's a mental model of what's happening more than really what's happening on the ground. And that that model is more of an aspirational model for, you know, imagining that we are going to be a society that is going to be eating more meat as a social status thing. But in reality, perhaps there isn't enough money going around for people to have enough demand for this meat. In reality, people are struggling to sell it. So do these people in these various societies, do they really need to be trying to produce more meat? Is Have they created a problem that they're then trying to solve partly with this overuse of antibiotics? Well, we got conflicting stories about that from some of the much larger commercial farmers. They were saying that there's this huge demand for their meat. And perhaps that's because they operate on a scale that they can sell it much more cheaply. But these relatively small scale peri-urban farmers found it a lot harder to sell, to make a profit and to sell just at the right time and be able to get their animals and their eggs out onto the market and compete. So it may be that there is some demand there, but perhaps that this form of market of farming is still unable to quite compete. So although it's quick farming, perhaps it's not scaled enough to really compete. I'm not sure. We sort of got some mixed messages on that. And I think that it really does open up some questions for the assumptions we make about whether on the African continent, we should inevitably see this expansion of protein demand and protein production. 
Because I think what we're seeing in many countries, not just Uganda, is this assumption that there is going to be a market for protein and we should be creating more meat. And we see those conversations interacting with climate change discussions as well as with discussions around infectious diseases. So I think a lot of the assumptions that we make about dietary requirements and, and inevitable sort of teleological models of economic development and what people will demand in their diets probably do need to be questioned and sort of rethought in terms of the realities that we face in the immediate future and the trade-offs between those things that we imagine to be inevitable and required for a healthy body. Sounds to me like these farmers are being encouraged to do the type of intensive farming that people in other countries are being asked to back away from. So I think they're not being asked to do it, but it's ending up being what they're doing because of the conflation and they're being asked to be entrepreneurs and they're being encouraged to use particular methods often that are coming in and being marketed from overseas, often from Europe, around using concentrates. But at the same time, the AMR community are asking these people to do higher standard biosecurity and, you know, and to look after their animals in antibiotic free ways. And people, when I ask them that, they just laugh. The idea that we could do this without antibiotics seems absurd to a lot of people. So I think, you know, we really have to revisit some of those ideas about how realistic it is to address antimicrobial resistance with these sort of relatively simple models. I think the reality is that antibiotics are so entangled with the systems that we're in that we can't simply remove the antibiotics for that without trying to address the things that they are fixing in the system. So we started talking about the quick farming and really that idea sort of went in parallel with this idea that we've been developing on antibiotics as a quick fix that antibiotics are standing in for good infrastructure, that antibiotics are standing in for various other, you know, for speed, for time. So we see sort of antibiotics being this device or this part of the infrastructure such that you can't simply say, well, just stop using them because to remove them is to disentangle the system. We need to fix the things that antibiotics are standing in for and then we won't need them in the same way anymore. And what are some of those things that need to be fixed? So I think in this example with the quick farming, we found that people were directly talking about antibiotics like an insurance. So looking at different insurance schemes for your for your flock of birds, for example, would be one way forward. We did quite a lot of interviews with people about the insurance schemes they use. Most people didn't have any insurance. Some cases, if you had a loan, which were very, very expensive loans, you were required to have insurance. Um, but really, the idea that you would be able to get anything back from those insurance, it, these were not functioning particularly well. There isn't a competitive marketplace for the insurance schemes, so they seem to, to work sort of of not well for smaller smaller scale farms. So in reality, they're using other forms of insurance such as antibiotics. So if we could look at that system of why it is that they're operating on such razor thin margins in the first place that they are dependent on antibiotics as one of several things that they're using, if we could look at that and try and change those conditions such they're not economic position to not use the antibiotics, that would be the starting place for me. Professor Claire Chandler, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, which is brought to you by the One Health Trust, please share it by email or social media and let us know what else you'd like to hear about at OWOH at OneHealthTrust.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to One World, One Health, brought to you by the One Health Trust.
I'm Ramanan Lakshmi Narayan, founder and president of the One Health Trust. You can subscribe to One World One Health on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at One Health Trust, one word, for updates on One World One Health and the latest in research on One Health issues like drug resistance, disease spillovers, and the social determinants of health. Finally, please do consider donating to the One Health Trust to support this podcast and other initiatives and research that help us promote health and well-being worldwide. Until next time.